Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for gathering your people this morning. We recognize that if given over to ourselves, we would choose our own way. By the prompting of your spirit and with the endearing nature of your people, you have called us to gather together to profess to the world that you are our God and that you have established your Son as our King, Lord, Savior, and friend. We thank you for this Advent season. While it is a man-made designation and holiday, we are thankful for it because it allows us to focus our hearts on the good news that you sent your Son in the flesh to take away our sin and grant us forgiveness and reconcile us back to you. We also give thanks for the many wonderful opportunities we have within this church to joyously celebrate this season. We pray that in all of it, you would help our hurried hearts not get pulled into the logistical difficulty of this season, but instead to focus on rejoicing in the birth of your son and the salvation he has accomplished for us. We confess to you, Lord, that we so quickly turn away from the importance of your truth onto things that entertain us and give us a temporary happiness only to be let down when they're finished. Help us instead this season, Lord, to bask in your eternal joy that you give regardless of circumstances by your Holy Spirit. And finally, Lord, as a church family, we give you great thanks this morning that the most recent scan for cancer in our sister Debbie Holland has returned with great news. Yes, let's rejoice. Great news that she is currently cancer-free. We pray in thanksgiving for your awesome healing, and we ask that you would protect her body from this day forward. Thank you, Lord, in the midst of the darkest circumstances that you have shined your light, not just in a healthy outcome, because you would still be good if it were a different outcome, but in the sanctification that you brought to Debbie, the Holland family, and this church family in the midst of all of it. We thank you for your glory in our sanctification. We also give you thanks this morning that we are part of a much larger cloud of witnesses that spans time and space. Thank you for your great work uh, in our sister church, Salem Heights, and pastors Justin Green and Pete Potloff in the recent training they provided on the topic of counseling and forgiveness. We pray that it would result in great fruit throughout your church and in this city. We also pray this morning for Edgewood Bible Church and Pastor Jeff Coulter in Edgewood, Washington. May your words speak clearly to them this morning and conform their hearts to your truth. And Lord, we ask the same thing for ourselves. As we engage in a very weighty text together this morning, please teach us by your Holy Spirit and open the eyes of our hearts and minds the reality of our sinfulness, the reality of your glory, and our intense need for your grace each and every day. Help us to see our need for one another in the midst of our fight against sin in this life. And please help my very human, fallible, and errant words somehow communicate the truth of your eternal, perfect, and inspired word. In the authority of Jesus, our King, we humbly pray all these things. Amen. Amen. And you can go ahead and have a seat and open your Bibles up to Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Advent season has begun, and so all of you thought we were going to go to a nice, simple Christmas story in the Bible, right? Ah, uh, you all know me better than that. For we are a church that loves God's word, amen? amen? And we love all of it, not just the ones, the stories that make us feel happy, not just the stories that seem to lift us up a bit, but we love all of the Bible because it gives glory to God, amen? amen. 
Well, one of the most frustrating things to me when driving, maybe this resonates with you, is having to deal with blind spots. You're about to move lanes and you look over in your side mirror, which shows no cars at that moment, only to look over your shoulder a little bit further and see that there is a car sitting in your exact blind spot, not moving. Does anybody else get frustrated by that? Anyone? Yeah? Yeah. The worst is when you feel like a hypocrite when you're the one that's sitting in someone else's blind spot. Well, if you turned over into that lane just based on what you saw in your mirror, it would have resulted in an accident. Blind spots can cause great destruction. Right after Kelly and I were first married, I was driving home from Portland by myself after a job interview. I was in the left lane on the steep incline of Northwest Burnside. If you've ever been there, you know how steep it was. Uh, waiting forever for someone in front of me to turn left. Now, the lane to the right of me was flowing freely, so naturally, I wanted to get into it as fast as possible to get home. So I put my blinker on, I look in my right side mirror, I see that a green Toyota Sienna minivan was about to pass me. And you might think, why is he being so detailed? You'll see in a moment. As I looked up at that moment, a green Toyota Sienna minivan uh, passed by, and I quickly turned my wheel right, and I hit the gas, and as I did so, I ran directly into a second green Toyota Sienna minivan. You see, what I saw in the mirror was the second of two of the same minivan. And when I looked up, the first one passed by, and so I thought it was gone, and I swerved, and I hit the other minivan. Blind spots can cause great destruction. Now, one of the things that we've been reminded of throughout this series on the Lordship of Christ and the life of the Christian is that we are no, in no way omnipotent, omniscient, self-sufficient, or infinite. Only the Lord is these things. We are finite, limited, and dependent. And we think we have more knowledge than we do because we have history books, we have video, we have the internet. We think that access to information is the same as possessing that information. But friends, we are not omniscient. We know only an infinitesimally small amount of what is actually real. The blind spot that each of us have as humans is large on a cosmic scale. Even the way we are built reminds us of this. Did you know that even if you have fully functioning, perfect 2020 vision, you still have a blind spot? Each of us can only see, on average, 120 degrees horizontally and 90 degrees vertically. That's a very limited line of sight. And even within that, the way our eyes are constructed, at the very point where our optic nerve connects to our retina, there is a blind spot. In that part of our retina, we literally cannot receive data from the light entering our eyes, so our brains must interpolate the blind spot based on surrounding detail and information from the other eye. You see, right now, you're looking out and thinking, I see everything, but there's literally a blind spot right in front of you. All of us have blind spots. And the tough part about blind spots is that you and I usually don't even know they are there because they're blind spots, right? We're blind to them. And we not only have blind spots physiologically, but we also have them relationally and spiritually emotionally and mentally. And often these all flow together. But, but perhaps the most destructive blind spots are those that begin as spiritual blind spots. These are places where we think we understand and know God. We think and uh, we know and understand his word and our own holiness. But in actu actuality, we are blind to our idolatry. We're blind to our predispositions to sin and many other parts. 
Brothers and sisters, every one of us has these blind spots, and blind spots cause destruction. Just ask the green Sienna minivan that I ran into. So how do we deal with these as Christians? Well, first, we read Scripture and pray that God would reveal these blind spots to us. For Scripture has a way of laying bare what is broken in us so that God can work with it. But a critical piece is still missing, even if we are devoted to the Word. Even if you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, sit and devote yourself to the reading of Scripture, you may still be blind to the areas that God's Spirit is trying to speak to you and bring conviction. So what do you need? What what, what do we need? What is missing then? Well, you need the other tool that God provided to his church to help with sanctification. You see, the Holy Spirit is not just in you. He's also in your brothers and sisters. And so that other tool of sanctification is the other people of God that surround you. And when we realize that we have these blind spots, first we even have to admit that we have them. And then we see that these blind spots can result in horrible and even eternal destruction. Well, then we will be far more open to surrounding ourselves with and opening ourselves up to the safety of the exhortation, encouragement, and discipleship of one another. You see, friends, what we're going to learn this morning is that we need one another to take care. We need one another to take care. And this idea is what comes across as the application and really command of our text this morning. The author of Hebrews will paint a background of the blind spot that caused destruction for Israel. And he will do so in an attempt to get the Hebrews, who are part of the new covenant people of God, the the church, to take seriously their responsibility for one another's walk with the Lord. And this idea is a core practicality in the fight to submit under the lordship of Christ and the fight to not rebel in our own lordship. And I'm excited for us as a church to understand this much-needed piece of our walk together under the reign of Christ. So let's begin by reading this section together in Hebrews 3, 12 through 4, 2. Let's read it together. Hebrews 3, 12. Take care, brothers. What's that? Oh, no, no, no. You don't have to read with me. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, just, Just listen as I read. Sorry. Thanks for the clarification. Sounds like every practice this week where I tell my players, bad coaching. Let me re say that. Okay. All right. Here we go. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened." This is the word of the Lord. 
Now, we could have taken a much larger section of this, obviously, but as we unpack this section, we're going to see that there are multiple commands that all fall off of this take care, and that's why the title is that we need one another to take care. And as we unpack this section, we first see the author entreating the readers and hearers of this letter to take care to trust in the Lord, to take care to trust in the Lord. Now, this section, as you can see in your Bibles, begins directly after a pretty hefty quote from the Old Testament, from the Psalms. And so to understand the literary context, we need to go back a bit and see what surrounds it. So let me catch you up to speed on the flow of thought so far. Would you just turn a couple pages back to the beginning of Hebrews? Maybe it's even just one page in your Bible. In Hebrews 1, and we're just going to cover it very quickly to catch us up to the author's train of thought. The letter written to the Hebrew Christians begins with a clear declaration of the authority of Jesus as the Messiah, as the primary means of communication from God the Father to his people. He is the anointed king of Yahweh. Take a look at Hebrews 1, the second part of verse 3, uh, through verse 4. It says, After making purification for sins, he, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's a statement of authority having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He has been given the kingdom by God the Father. And because of this, the Hebrews specifically, but all of us by implication, should not neglect to think through the salvation that God has provided in this enthronement of his Son. Take a look at Hebrews 2, verses 1 through the first part of 3. Therefore, because of this superiority and supremacy of God's Son, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You can already see the train of thought that's going to get us to our text this morning. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. This is meant to incite fear in those that are hearing it. Fear that makes us stand to attention and understand or strive to understand what we're being told. But for the Hebrews reading this, this would have been confusing for they were not safe in their land. How could they, they as Hebrews say, we've been given this salvation. We're not safe in the land of Canaan. We don't have all of our enemies destroyed. In fact, they were part of the same dispersion of saints across the globe as Gentiles were. So the author of Hebrews then has to explain that the kingdom is indeed real, that Christ does indeed reign, even though it doesn't feel like it. But it's in a different manner than they were expecting. Read with me in Hebrews, the second portion of Hebrews 2.8. 2.8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, in other words, he was enthroned and God has placed everything under his authority. It says he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But what do we then see? We see him for who, for, uh, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. 
The author states that Christ's whole point was to help those who were his true brothers in the faith. He continues in 2.17, he says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the saints of his people. Again, for the Hebrews, this would have been very confusing for they would have responded with the fact that they already had a high priest. They had a Levitical sacrifice, and yet it didn't work. It didn't work to keep them safe in the old covenant. And so the author, as if to intercept this critique quickly, compares Christ as the mediator of the new covenant with Moses as the mediator of the old. And it's in this discussion that he finishes with this statement in Hebrews 3.5. Look at Hebrews 3.5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This idea of holding fast, of sticking on, of of being consistent and enduring, these are very strong throughout these first three chapters. You see, the overall question that is being answered in the early portion of this letter is, what about all our fellow Hebrews who are not in the new covenant, who don't believe in Christ as Messiah? What happened to them? Are they part of the new covenant? And the author is saying, the only thing that solidly states that you are part of the people of the Messiah is if your heart has been changed to stay obedient to the Messiah. And that will endure because he has changed your heart. That's his whole point. And the author gives this statement and then follows it up with an example. He says, let me describe it for you. And then he gives commentary on that example. And that's what our text is this morning. The example that he gives next in the first few verses before our quoted text is a text that's quoted directly out of Psalm 95. And this is a psalm we've looked at now twice in the Lordship series, but here it is as explicit as it can be. But notice what the author very carefully omits here in Hebrews as we read it. We look at the verse in Hebrews, but let's compare it to what we heard in our earlier reading. It says in our earlier reading, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now look at the verses here in Hebrews. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. The author here in Hebrews omits the specific names that designate the occurrence, but left it more broad so that it could be applied to the wider audience. You see, we might read that, Meribah and Massa, and we might say, well, we weren't there, no big deal. But this way, every future generation of the church reads it and says, yeah, we don't want to harden our hearts, as in the rebellion. Nevertheless, the Hebrews hearing it would have known to which event this link of Psalm 95 is referring What it's referring to is the story from Numbers 13 and 14. I know I'm having you hop around here a lot, but I'm just trying to paint the picture before we get into our text. Let's go one more place. Let's go to Numbers 14 here. Go to Numbers 14, and then we'll move back to Hebrews. 
Numbers 13 and 14, you can read them in full on your own time, in your own study. And this is the story of the spies being sent into the land of Israel to gather intelligence on what the Hebrews were about to face. Joshua and Caleb came back and they encouraged the people in the Lord and said that God would prove faithful. He sent us here. He's going to help us conquer. Let's go in and conquer the land. But the other spies, the other 10 said, no, this is too tough. The inhabitants are too strong for us. We're going to be crushed. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. We'd be insane to go in. You see, God had proven faithful to them time and time again in the Exodus and in the trek to Canaan. But now, of all times, God's people said, I'm not sure we can trust him. We should probably go with our own call. We should probably do what we think is right here, even though God has shown himself powerful, praiseworthy, and perfect in his will. And so let's read here in 14, 1 through 10. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? My tone is intentional there, if you didn't catch it. Bunch of whiners. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Question, who was their leader? No, the Lord. The Lord. You're not doing a good enough job. So Lord, you fired. We're going to get somebody else. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Can you even imagine? Guys, follow the Lord. Now nah, let's kill him. That's a happy church service. My goodness. Now, there's so much more we could go into here, but for the sake of time, we will simply remember that the outcome of this rebellion was 40 years of wandering in the wilderness while this whiny generation died off because they didn't trust the Lord. They literally died in the wilderness. And Psalm 95 and Numbers 13 and 14 provide the backdrop as we enter our text in Hebrews. So let's now go back to Hebrews and let's read the first portion again and see what the author of Hebrews is saying to us. With all of this as the background, the author says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, 
if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The author begins with a stark warning. Take care, brothers. This means beware, watch out, caution. It could be that the brothers title here is even double in its meaning. Brothers in Christ, yes, but also brothers and sisters in ethnic Israel. In other words, he's saying, watch out that you aren't in the exact same heart stance as our predecessors. And this call to beware is what the overarching command of this section is as he digs deeper into why we need to take care. What is the author's base warning here? In our culture, as we read this, our culture that is immersed in certain theological bents, we probably hone in on the fall away piece. We don't want to fall away. But look more closely and examine what is the true concern of this author. The true concern is that there was an unbelieving heart. That the heart had not been changed or converted to belief and faith, and yet the people said they were the Lord's. And that evil, unbelieving heart is one that, like the Israelites at Massa and Meribah, doubts that the Lord is trustworthy. And this harkens back to the original fall of Adam and Eve, doesn't it? For what was it that Eve was tempted with by Satan? It wasn't the fruit. It was the idea that God was not trustworthy and things would be better if she could run her own life. That is the deceitfulness of sin that is mentioned here. And that is the deceitfulness of sin that attacks every one of our hearts. For Israel on the day of rebellion, it was that God's plan was a bad idea. We're with you 90%, Lord, but this last 10%, we're not so sure. It was that he had saved them just to destroy their life. Ooh, that one hits home for us, doesn't it? Lord, why did you provide salvation if you're gonna make me go through this horrible point in my life? We do this all the time as New Testament Christians. They responded in rebellion that they should get a new leader that was not who God was or who God appointed just as we often look to the external to try and fix what's actually an unbelieving heart. And they decided that they should go back to the kingdom of bondage from which they were freed because, well, that was more fun. It was more comfortable and easier. This lack of trust in God as providential Lord and maker and shepherd was the deceit of sin that led them to harden their hearts against his call and voice in their lives. It stopped up their ears and they did so voluntarily. The command then that is put forward by the author is that all of God's people need to exhort one another to stay away from this if their heart is ever believed at all. The word in the original language of exhortation here is a kind of pleading with one another. It's begging one another, pleading with one another to trust the Lord and submit to his reign and rule. You see, we can't force one another we can only stand with the Lord and beg one another to come to him. If a heart is hard, we can't shove the person towards Christ. And how often does the author state that we should be doing this as the people of God? He says that we should be doing it how often? Every day, as long as it is called today. I don't know if he meant to be sarcastic there, but it's got sarcastic overtones. So which day should we exhort each other to follow Jesus? Hmm, today every day that's called today. You get it? All the time. There's never a point where we say, ah, today's a day off from exhorting one another to follow the Lord. 
It must be a constant pleading with one another to be drawn to the security and safety of sitting under the rule of the trustworthy and faithful God. Like the Israelites in Egypt, perhaps we thought it a great idea to leave the kingdom of darkness in which we were in bondage. Yeah, that that sounds good. After all, uh, people we like were leaving. You know, our parents, our grandparents, some friends, they left that darkness too, and they came into the kingdom of light. That sounds good. I'll do that. After all, it sounds better than where we're at, and we know that the kingdom of darkness is a bit evil, but then when we got into the life of trusting obedience and laying out our life for the Lord to do with as he pleases, then we began to see what it was like being a Christian. And we realized that actually I'm not sure I trust the Lord with my life. I'm not sure I trust the Lord with my income. I'm not sure I trust the Lord with my family. You know, we just wanted the outcome that actually in the end satisfied our lordship, not his. You see, we must must understand the difference between the true and false gospels. A gospel is false when it lifts up your or my lordship. A false gospel that trusts in God merely to bring about the desired lordship of the one who believes in it is a false gospel. But the true gospel lifts up the lordship of Christ. It declares that a person will trust God to bring about God's desired outcome, not our own. And whatever that is, We will rejoice in it, even if it's difficult, because we know it will lead to God's glory and God's unfolding plan of redemption. The true gospel says, Lord, my life is yours to do with as you please, and then trusts in him. And so the author points out that if our original confidence was Christ, rather than the outcome of what Christ gives us, then we will hold it firm to the end. But if our original confidence was something that we believe Christ would give us or would bring to us, then we will waver at any point he does not deliver, which declares that we did not share in Christ in the first place. One of the primary indicators that we are not trusting in the Lord and that this distrust is originating from an unbelieving heart is that we will knowingly choose consistent disobedience and lordship of self over obedience to the Lord. With this in mind, the author says next, take care to obey his voice. Take care to obey his voice. Let's read the next section, starting in verses, uh, in verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. We have to remember as we read this that the author is going to great lengths to make this very pertinent to the primary audience to whom he's writing. But he's also going to great lengths to make this applicable to anyone who reads it later as well, including us. For this letter, like the New Testament letters, uh, other New Testament letters, was used as an encyclical, meant, which means it would cycle through the, the churches for shared edification. The structure he uses, therefore, makes it applicable to us as well today. And so he continues, to any of us that hear his voice, we must take care to obey. We must beware and run from, at all costs, disobedience. 
For the Israelites in the background to which he is referring, they heard God's voice. They saw God's miraculous hand. They experienced God's favor. And yet, they chose to knowingly rebel against God's will. If it doesn't come across, guys, this is a big deal. That's why the author pulls out this specific line from Psalm 95. He is trying to emphasize that they disobeyed. And they did this in a big way, not once, but twice in the same story. For after God says, I'm going to wipe them out, Moses goes to them and says, no, Lord, please don't do that. And then he goes and tells the people, God has forgiven your sin to the point he's not going to immediately wipe you out, but you will fall in the wilderness. And then they freak out. And what do they do? Well, the rest of the story here is in Numbers 14, 39 through 45. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. They rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised for we have sinned. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up. For the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant or the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. First, they disobeyed the order to enter the land and defeat the inhabitants of their own judgment that it was unsafe and God was not trustworthy to accomplish what he had promised. And then they go and they do this. They say, oh no, let's go to the thing we were supposed to do before. But in doing so, they completely missed the point. Obedience wasn't in doing the behavior. Obedience wasn't in doing the behavior. Obedience was in trusting the Lord that his rule and will are perfect and good. Now, doing the thing, doing the thing is maybe not the point here. The solution would have been to hear his voice and obey, regardless of what he asks. Now, one might protest that God here looks transactional and requires their obedience in order to earn his love, and that this sounds like a legalistic God all this discussion of obedience and disobedience. But this is where the author of Hebrews clarifies the situation for us. He clarifies that these were the people that had already experienced God's grace. They were freed from Egypt. They were brought out by Moses. By God's grace, they were broken from bondage and led towards God's ultimate rest. So then if the exodus was by God's grace that was given to them, why did they not make it all the way, we might ask? Because while they liked the outcome of God's grace, there was a vitally important ingredient that was missing. They didn't like his reign over them. I cannot think of a statement that more exemplifies the current day church. They like the outcome of God's grace, but they don't like his reign over them. These Israelites didn't all like being in covenant with him where he is the benevolent sovereign and they are the humble, dependent citizens. And this refusal of his lordship, this desire to be the one in charge and in control, this distrust of his rule became apparent in the disobedience of the people when the command of the Lord was put forth. Brothers and sisters, the longer I am in ministry, the more I see this as true. 
The evidence that someone is a Christian is that there is a desire to walk in obedience to the commands of Christ. That's it. And notice I did not say that the source of salvation is obedience. That is impossible. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the evidence of salvation that then follows, the evidence that shows that a change has occurred in the heart, is ongoing, growing obedience to Christ. It is a heart that stops making excuses for our own sin. Realize also that this does not mean perfection. If it did, Christ would not have seen fit to give us instruction on what occurs when we have blind spots and rebel against good counsel. You guys are familiar with this passage. We beat it into the ground quite regularly. Matthew 18, 15 through 18. If your brother sins against you, and notice it's brothers, right? It's Christians. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, let it, uh, tell, it, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The Lord knew that we would still sin. The evidence of a converted heart where justification by God's grace has occurred is not perfection, but it is obedience. You guys who are parents know the difference. No parent should ever expect their child to be perfect. If so, start saving for their therapy bills when they're older. But you know, you know if your child is obedient. Why? Because when you correct them, they submit to your leadership and guidance. Obedience that comes when we are confronted with the truth of God's law that is contrary to our current beliefs or actions, that's what shows that we're actually followers of Christ. A converted, justified heart will submit to the truth that is evident in the word of God. It won't keep fighting it. It won't keep trying to make its own excuses or come up with other scripture that somehow subverts that. It will not only listen, but it will also hear the voice of God. Friends, I lovingly say this to you. You can come every week and you can audibly listen to the gospel preached. Maybe you've done this your whole life. But unless you cry out to God to grip your heart to hear and obey the reality of the gospel, then you are not in Christ, and you are not saved from your sin. For Christ died on our behalf to grant us forgiveness from our sin. He resurrected from the dead to show victory over the kingdom that ushered that death in. And he ascended on high, to be reigning king over the people whom he drew into his kingdom. He is both Savior and Lord. The evidence that you have been given the grace of trust in his lordship is that when push comes to shove, you obey his commands as your Lord and King. But the author's point is that those who ended up not entering his rest were those who, at the final evaluation, rebelled because they had within them an evil, unbelieving heart. They believed that they could be part of God's people, all the while showing evidence that their hearts were never converted in the first place. It follows then that the solution is for us to wage war against our desire to be rulers over our own lives. We must instead be soft to the call and command of Christ and trust in him as our faithful and good God. We must go to the word not to see how great we are and how we're totally fine the way we are, 
but to go to the Word knowing it is meant to conform us and transform us into the image of Christ. If we do not, yet we keep proclaiming to ourselves that we are his followers, we might end up failing to actually enter his eternal rest. And so the last portion of our text is the author declaring to us that we need to take care to avoid false assurance. Take care to avoid false assurance. Let's read the last few lines of our text here in Hebrews 4, 1 through 2. Therefore, because of everything we've just gone through, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, still available by his grace, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. He begins with that connector word, therefore. Because of this, he says, we must take care to trust the Lord with a genuine faith, faith, that we must take care to obey God's voice. Then we must also, he says, take care to fear. But fear what? Fear that we will fail to enter God's rest, just as with those who rebelled at Massa and Meribah. Now, guys, this is not a fear that God is not powerful enough to save you. This is not fear that if you lay down your life before the Lord, that he will maybe just decide not to save you. It's none of those fears. God is powerful. He will save those who are his. If you lay your life down before him, he has already done the work. His power is complete. The work is complete. Those are not the things we're fearing here. What we're fearing is that we hold false assurance. To understand what the author is doing, we should pause for a moment and take a look at how the author has used pronouns throughout the text. He's obviously talking to a group of people who is his audience. But then he's also referring to those people, meaning the rebellious Israelites, who did not enter the land and rebelled. But then you'll notice he also refers to we and us. But throughout, there's a question left lingering. Is the hearer part of the collective us with the author, with the redeemed, or are they part of the you that stands in connection to the rebellious hardened hearts of prior Israel. And that's what he's doing here. He's asking the question. He's getting you and I to ask the question. Notice what he says. Let us, all of us as believers, fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The deciding factor is then laid out for the hearers. For good news came to us, justice to them. And the word being used here that's translated good news is the same root word that is translated elsewhere as the gospel. Euangelizo here in the Greek. The good news, the gospel, was preached to Israel that lived in that day the same as it was preached to the New Testament church. But how could that be? Is the author off here? For Christ had not yet come in the flesh back in Numbers 14. Well, the answer is simple. While they were looking forward to redemption and we were looking back towards redemption... We, the new covenant believers, and they, the old covenant believers, have the same base good news. And that is that the covenant creator God reached down to a stubborn and rebellious people and freed us from the kingdom of darkness that we joined to rebel against our creator. He redeemed us, brought us through the wilderness of wandering in our own lordship, 
and will bring us finally into his rest. The good news, the gospel, in short, is that God is good and that he redeems his covenant people in order to provide them rest. We know now that this redemption, this rest, is through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. They did not know that piece, but they knew the overall idea. And friends, this is a rest, beautifully, that is both now and into eternity. The rest of God's chosen people now is the same as it was for Israel then. Not rest like joining a country club kind of rest or going on vacation to lay by the pool kind of rest, but rest that trusts. The rest is trusting in a faithful, omnipotent, and benevolent creator who will take what Satan means for evil and turn it for God's glory and our good. And we can stand in this truth now. I miss greatly my friend Marcel over in uh, Burkina Faso because every time I'm with him, I'm reminded how much I stand in my own lordship because I worry about everything and I want to control everything. And Marcel just rests. It's the Lord's will, he says. And I think to myself, ah, that's a man who understands the Lord's lordship. Lord, please grant me that heart. That's the rest we can have now. So many of us in this room, we struggle so constantly because we're trying to control what we can't control. We're trying to be Lord when we were never asked to be. Rest is when we give it over to the Lord and say, Lord, however my life goes, let it be your will and let me submit to it. But then eternally, the rest of God is the fullness of his Sabbath rest, where we can finally rest from our war against sin and rebellion that wages within us and around us. We can finally rest from our labor of faithful belief in that which we cannot see, for we will see God as he is. And we can finally rest from our labor of spreading the gospel to a lost world, for all creation will know its creator and Lord. So we must beware, brothers and sisters. We must take care and fear lest any of us in this room or who's watching online, any of us who proclaim to be among the church have failed to reach his rest in reality. The big question is, how would we fail to reach his rest? Well, the author paints a picture of those who might say with their mouths or even look back at their lineage that they're part of God's chosen people. I've been a Christian forever, they might say. But the reality is that they have within themselves an evil, unbelieving heart that is being hardened with each and every day where they choose to rebel against God's rule. And friends, this is what it means to have false assurance. Friends, I don't bring this to you because I dislike you. I bring it to you because I want to spend eternity with you. Hans, why wouldn't you just tell me I'm okay? Well, what if you're not? Would you like going to a doctor that looks at the giant cancerous tumor on you and says, you're fine, no worries. Is that a good doctor? No. Think about this with me. Imagine a spouse who is so arrogantly confident that they are so wonderful that they can behave however they want in their marriage covenant and yet feel assured that their spouse will never walk away from the covenant relationship. Their arrogance justifies their anger, their resentment, their adultery, their abuse, and so on and so forth. Their lifestyle, their very lifestyle would declare that they are no longer in the covenant commitment with their spouse, but they hold in themselves a false assurance that they're still safe and sound in that same covenant. Friends, this is the idea of false assurance. When we act outside 
of what accords with the covenant relationship into which we've been brought by sheer grace. Good news came to the author and the rest of the church, just as it did to the Israelites at Massa and Meribah. But the good news of God's redemptive reign over his people did not benefit them as it did the others because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For those who listened had believing hearts made soft by the work of the Holy Spirit, illuminating their minds and hearts to the message preached. This is where our English language breaks down in the Hebrew. When they say, Shema, O Israel, they say, hear. They mean, listen, yes, but then obey, act it out. In this process of hearing and obeying, the Holy Spirit has joined the hearts of God's people together in faith with a cloud of witnesses that declare the reign of the Lord over them. This word faith here, that they were not united in faith, this word here is best given the definition of allegiance in this context. Allegiance to the one that is providing the rest. It is not just belief in what cannot be seen. That will be dealt with later in Hebrews. This here, this faith, is an allegiance to the living God through the redemptive work and reign of Jesus Christ. The one that we know is the perfect reflection of the living creator God because he is the one that resurrected to new life from the grave after having died for the sins of all of his people. So take care, dear brothers and sisters. Be watchful and take note as to whether or not your heart trusts in the living God. Take care that if you do trust him, then the obvious result is that you will obey him. You will give thanks to him for whatever occurs in your life. And you will constantly be dependent upon him for empowerment to walk in this obedience. And take care, dear brothers and sisters, that this trust and obedience is present or at bare minimum is growing in your life with each passing day. Otherwise, you must fear lest you stand in false assurance that you are in Christ. And friends, the consequence of false assurance, as we have seen in those who rebelled here and fell in the wilderness, those consequences are dire. This section of text, brothers and sisters, is possibly one of the most sobering texts in the Bible. To read it as it is in reality will bring us to a point where we must be honest with ourselves about the state of our heart. And we must ask the question, am I as blind as those Israelites were then to the state of my own heart? Friends, we all have blind spots, every one of us, myself especially. And it is these very blind spots that can potentially cause us to be just as blind to our lack of faith and rebellion as the people used here as an example in this portion of Hebrews. And that is why the author begins the way that he does. His commands speak clearly with all of this, that we need one another to take care. We need one another. He begins with, exhort one another every day, he says. We have come, we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let us fear lest any of you, any who claim to be Christians, should fail to enter his rest. The author's implicit hope is that all those who listen will be united by faith with himself and with those who are truly in Christ. Friends, does this sound like Christianity is a faith for lone wolves and individuals who want to only walk in a private faith, individuals who only join together in assembly with God's people once in a while? Is that what the Christian faith is for? 
Absolutely not. If you believe so, you're kidding yourself. And you're standing outside the covenant people of God. Friend, if you are here this morning and you have been taught that Christianity is only a personal relationship with you and Jesus, you are being set up for failure. For salvation is indeed individual and personal, absolutely, and you must have a personal relationship with Christ. But you do so as a member of a greater body of believers. And without those believers, your blind spots will indeed blind you to your own rebellion and your own hardening heart. God has given us one another as fellow citizens of his kingdom and co-heirs of his grace. He has given us to one another as a gift to speak the truth in love to each other and lovingly point out the blind spots that we have gone our whole life happily ignoring. And this is not a spontaneous opinion and personality-based criticism that we can give one another because our feelings tell us that we have a word from the Lord for someone. That is not what this is. No, we are meant to be ambassadors of our shared Lord to one another, heralds of his good news, reminders of his character, and emissaries of his rule. We are to be reminders for each other. And this is what it means to exhort or plead with one another every day. And note, before I give you these practical realities of who we are to one another, that all of these, all of this is based on God's word, not our word. Look ahead just a little bit with me to Hebrews 4. I'll put it on the board here. Hebrews 4, 11 through 12. At the end of this chapter, he says this, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But notice he says this, friends, in the context of what we've just described. Exhort one another daily. What should we be exhorting one another with? The word of God. It is the word of God rightly applied among the people of God that is used by the Spirit to soften our hearts and separate us from our rebellious flesh. And friends, this must begin with the humility that says, I probably won't even see the sin that I need to be corrected on. Some of the worst words in the English language are, well, I don't really see it. When someone brings you something and you say, I, just, I, I hear you, but I don't really see it. Friends, you're doing it right now. <laughs> that is exactly what we're talking about. We must be humble and say, no, please tell me, I don't see it. And for that reason, I must listen to you because I know that you have my good in mind. You're telling me this not because you hate me, but because you love me and you want me with you, united in faith and eternity. Friends, that must be where it starts. Rather than looking at each other with a critical eye, wondering who wants to one-up one another or who wants to have power over each other, we must look at each other as co-equal heirs of grace that want to be united in faith. And we must invite that into our lives. Please bring it to me for I don't see it, and I need your help by the Spirit to see it. And so, friends, very practically, in all we've covered in this Lordship series, under the Lordship expressed through God's Word, we are to be reminders to one another. First, we are to be reminders of who the Lord actually says He is. Often we build a false God as a reflection of ourselves and our experiences, and so we need one another 
to open the Bible with us and point us to the full truth of who God is. Not just the partial truth that we've grasped onto because it makes sense to us. And friends, sometimes this means pointing to his discipline and wrath. And sometimes this means, for those who are broken reeds, pointing to his grace and his care and his love. We're to be reminders of who the Lord actually says he is. We're also to be reminders of who the Lord is in experience. I've said this many times before, but many Christians are waiting for a dopamine hit from the Holy Spirit within themselves when the Holy Spirit is dwelling in their fellow believer that wants to sit with them and talk with them and hug them and love them. Or be reminders of the Lord's comfort and care in the midst of our fellowship. And often that needs to be asked for because we are still human, not just expected. It needs to be asked for. We're to be reminders of who the Lord actually says he is, reminders of who the Lord is in experience. We're also to be reminders of God's good providence. Our stories of God's work in our lives are not meant to only bolster our personal faith. They're meant to build up one another and point to the fact that God is good and just even when our feelings tell us otherwise. Friends, we're Americans, and so when we get sick or have hard times or need something, we usually isolate and retreat and think, I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps, I can do this, and then we destroy ourselves. Friends, why not let one another in? You're not so powerful and strong that you don't need other people. Let one another in when you're hurting, when you need help. Let us come to surround you with care, and then testify to the good providence of God in using his people. Tell the world how good God is and what he's done in your life. We're to be reminders of God's good providence to one another. We're also to be reminders of God's truth about his worldview and his view of us and his view of sin. We need one another to constantly bring us back to the truth of the word. And sometimes, friends, this means saying the hard reality that someone needs to hear. As we've gone through this series, I've met with a great number of you and very much appreciated it who've come to me and said that you're realizing the reality that you don't actually trust the Lord, you don't actually obey the Lord, and that you're walking in your own lordship. Praise God for his conviction, amen? amen. The Lord has been gracious by his spirit to this church to cast the scales from our eyes so that we can finally come to him in repentance and dependence rather than walk in a self-willed attempt at obedience that keeps failing. So friends, if you say to yourself, I, I think I trust the Lord, I'm pretty sure I trust the Lord, but I, I just don't feel like trusting the Lord. Well, here's the deal, guys. You, you don't trust the Lord. Stop joking with yourself. Well, I want to walk in obedience, but I just don't. Well, friends, you're not walking in obedience. Stop fooling yourself. It's time to surround yourself with people that can encourage you and build you up and call you to account in these things. Stop walking in that deceit that sin has brought you. And instead, walk in the truth of repentance. Lord, I am not obedient to you. I do not trust you. He wants to hear that from you. Don't wait until you're cleaned up before you go to him. Go to him and say, Lord, this is the truth of my heart. Save me. And friends, he will meet you in it. And when this is not going well and the heart of one of our number continues in deep rebellion, the most loving thing that we can remind them of is the Lord's discipline as a loving father. We can exhort them through discipleship that might lead to eventually church discipline if there is no repentance. And that's only if the evidence of their life is that they are walking in ongoing rebellion and disobedience. Because friends, this is loving because it's evidence of an evil, unbelieving heart that doesn't just need to get better. 
but it actually needs to admit that it is not converted and it needs to be converted. And this is loving brothers and sisters because it will break them free from false assurance and cause them to turn to the Lord in truth. This morning, I know that there are people in here whose spirit is fighting against whether or not to let the Lord reign. Friends, here is the answer. Fall down on your face before the Lord and say, Lord, I submit to you. I'm not gonna fight anymore. I'm yours, save me. And then, friends, when the Lord breaks this person's heart free and turns it towards his truth, we can then not only be reminders of the loving Father's discipline, but reminders of God's loving grace as we joyfully accept that person back into fellowship because their continuous and purposeful repentance has shown a heart that has been truly converted. In all these ways, and many more, dear brothers and sisters, we need one another to take care. We need one another to take care. We cannot do this on our own. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's now join together in faith by way of prayer to ask the Lord for his grace upon every one of us that we might be empowered by his spirit to walk in true faith, strong belief, reliant trust, and firm obedience. Father God, this is a sobering, sobering text. We do not understand how blind we are to our own sin, our own rebellion. And Lord, rather than desiring truth, we often fall to the deceitfulness of sin in our own spirits that says, I just want to know that I'm okay anyway. And so, Lord, this morning, I thank you for your grace to us that you have given us your word to convict our hearts, to separate our hearts of stone from the heart of flesh that you're trying to grow in us, to cut away the flesh and allow us to stand firm in your spirit. Lord God, you are such a good God and you love us so much. You do not speak these words to us to condemn us, but to call us to conviction and repentance. And so I pray, Lord, for my own heart, for the heart of every leader in this church, and for the heart of every member and visitor, Lord, that you would break our hearts by your spirit. And that you would then build us up by your grace to let us know that we stand in your people and you have given us the empowerment to choose to walk in obedience. And Lord, when we have those blind spots and we don't see that we're actually walking in disobedience, please surround us with the voices of one another in loving exhortation to call us to conviction, to call us to repentance, and give us hearts to accept it, not defend, not fight, but accept and receive and hear and go to your word to see if it is true. And if it is, Lord, help us to repent and follow you and thank those voices around us that have brought conviction to us. We can talk all day theoretically, Lord, about your lordship in our lives, but this is where the rubber meets the road. Help us, Lord, to be in your word, to be convicted by it, by your spirit, and help us to be receptive, humbly receiving when other people bring us conviction that we're missing that is absolutely there in your word. 
and all of it, Lord. Let it lead to your glorification, your worship, your proclamation throughout the world, especially here in Salem, and help it lead to us walking in your ways, being conformed to who you are so that we might rest now and on into eternity in your goodness, your faithfulness, and your covenant love. We pray all this this morning in Jesus' precious name. Amen.